Welcome to Radiant Life. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here. And it is now snowing, so it officially feels like Christmas. All right? How many of you hate snow? You're like, no, go away. All right, we still love you. How many of you love snow? Yeah, hey. Hey, turn to someone around you real quick before we jump in. Turn to someone around you and say, Merry Christmas. And now your second choice, tell them Merry Christmas. All right, well, we are going to have a little time of devotion, and then we're going to partake in communion, and we're going to, everyone got a candle? If not, you can go out in the lobby right now. You won't offend me if you get up and leave and get a candle. We'll use that towards the end. But uh, we are in a series together, and I'm going to wrap it up this morning. It's just a two-week Christmas series together titled In the Fullness of Time, and we look at this and we're wondering, why did God send Jesus to earth in the time that he did? Why not wait a thousand years later? Why not go 500 years earlier? Why in that point in history did God decide to send Jesus Christ, his son, to earth? And we've based this entire series title on Paul, who wrote to the church in Galatia. We have his letter in the Newer Testament called Galatians. Paul hated Jesus, persecuted Jesus' followers, ended up meeting Jesus, fell in love with him, and ended up on being one of the greatest first century missionaries that we ever had in the entire ancient world. And this is what he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the, what friends? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And we have been wondering, what is that fullness of time? Why did Paul say that? And last week, we looked at a guy by the name of Luke, found in the Newer Testament. We looked at his story and what he had to say, and he gave us insight into the ancient world that Jesus was born into. He said, in those days, Caesar Augustus, and we unpacked who Caesar Augustus was. He was an evil guy. He was known as the son of God. He was known to bring peace to the world. He was known to bring um, salvation for all humanity and also to forgive people of their sins. And that's who was on the Roman emperor's throne at the time was Caesar Augustus. And God said, nope, the true one to bring peace and salvation and forgiveness. I'm sending my son now, the true son of God. So if you will, we're going to look at the other birth narrative which is then found in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bible or tablet or phone, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. About two-thirds of the way through your Bible, you're going to get four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They write on the biography of the life of Jesus. This is where we get. And only two of those guys write about the birth. We looked at Luke last week, his letter. This week we'll briefly look at Matthew. And Matthew sets up something for us, kind of like Luke did. Okay? Matthew Chapter 2, verse 1, begins this way. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of who? So Matthew's saying, let's look at the smaller world of Jesus' life. He's born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. And I sit there and go, why is there a king? Because I thought Caesar Augustus is on the world's uh, scene right now, and he's supposed to be ruling everything. Well, I want to know who this guy is. Why does Matthew have to say King Herod? Why not leave him out of the story? And I think there's significance here. 
See, King Herod, he was born to Antipater II. Turn to your neighbor and say, Antipater. That's a great name. No one's ever going to call any more kids Antipater these days, right? Antipater II was kind of, in a sense, hired by the Roman Empire to sit there in present-day Jerusalem, present-day Israel, and kind of just rule over that region, if you will, because that's a major land bridge between Africa and all of Europe is Israel, so Europe was, or uh, the Roman Empire was ruling everything, and they needed someone to sit there and kind of rule that land strip there. And when Antipater got older, his son Herod, at the ripe old age of 25 years old, his dad Antipater says, Herod, I need you to rule some of my land as well. I'm going to give you the northern half of Israel, which we know as Galilee. So Herod is now ruling Galilee. Well, all of a sudden, this empire to the east of them, known as the Parthians, come in and they revolt in Jerusalem. They want that land because it's a land bridge of trade between Africa and all of Europe and Asia Minor. They want that land. So the Parthians come in. Antipater's dead. Herod comes and he goes, uh-oh, the Parthians are here. I got to get out of here for my own life. Him and his mom flee at night because Herod's like kind of like a mama's boy. And they flee at night and they're trying to get to Rome to go to the Roman Senate and say, you have another empire trying to take over your land. On the way to Rome, his mom's chariot flips. She becomes unconscious. Herod thinks she's dead and almost tries to commit suicide. Because he can't handle the death of his mother, even though she didn't die. He's, she's just unconscious. Well, they ended up making it to Rome, and he appears before the Roman Senate and says, hey, the Parthians are coming. You guys got to do something. And they look at Herod and says, we have an idea. We're going to make you king over that entire area. And if we put someone who represents us, who maybe get the title of king, other empires will be afraid of you. And they gave him all the money just to keep peace over in Israel. And what they ended up doing is the Roman Senate then says, Herod, you are the king of the Jews. Does that name sound familiar to someone? We also refer to Jesus as the king of Jews. And all of a sudden now, he's, he's, Herod is a stud. He's athletic. He's strong. He's kind of like... Am I more offended you laugh at that? Or <laughs> Rome loves him. He's everything to Rome. They're like, you're a little mini-me. You rule. We'll give you all the money. Just rule that area. And uh, he goes back. Herod goes back and makes his stamp. He rules with an iron fist in Israel and says, hey, we need to rule. I'm ruling with Roman authority over all the Jews. They named me king of the Jews, and I rule over you. And they try a little revolts here and there, and nothing pans out. He's wiping out enemies left and right. And Herod gets to the point where he's like, this is kind of boring being king. Like, no one can defeat me. So what Herod does is he decides, I'm going to go on a massive building journey. I'm just going to build a bunch of things in the land, and that will be fun for me because everyone else is no competition. So I want to take you to three quick places before we jump back into Matthew to get to know Herod just a little bit more the king of the Jews. Here's the first place I want to take you to, Masada. This 
Masada. When I went to Israel, it's one of my favorite places that I visited was this place. Masada, there was, it's by the, sea of, uh, the Dead Sea over on the east side of Israel, and there was no hill there. And so Herod's mentality is, if God didn't build it, I will. There was no big hill over there. He wants to build a palace by the Dead Sea in case the Jewish people revolt big time against him. He's got a place to go and run and be safe. And he, and well, he didn't. His team had built this mountain out by the Dead Sea and built him a palace on top of this mountain. It was massive. But again, Herod's mentality is, Go big or go home, ruling you Jews is boring. I'm defeating you. And all the, all the um, little small fires I've been putting out, I'm go big or go home. I need to start building things. And this is the south side. We're looking north, the Sea of Galilee over here. You've got uh, the country of Jordan here. Those are the Jord Jordanian mountains. And on the north tip of Masada, look at this. Herod built a three-tiered palace, all for him. He had a huge banquet hall. His own bedroom was down here, and it had three, almost like a 360 view of everything he could ever want. There were storehouses up here where the storehouses that archaeologists found fish sauce from Spain, super expensive stuff. They found the best wines from Italy, and that's what was importing to Masada, and he hung out here maybe 5% of his time. He's got this massive thing. He also built and brought into the ancient world frescoes. All throughout his palace were frescoes, and he brought mosaics as tiles. He tiled all his bedroom floors and his bathrooms, and that's what he did. He went big or go home. And again, if God didn't build it, I can. Welcome to Masada. Now, he didn't stop at Masada. He says, well, I know I'm king of the Jews by the Roman Empire. Maybe I'll do something to gift Rome. Welcome to Caesarea. Do you see Caesar's name in there? Herod's a brown noser. He builds an entire port city just for Caesar Augustus. And here's the picture there. He has a fourth in seating capacity amphitheater built exactly like you would have in Rome. His palace is this peninsula. You see this little square in the peninsula? That's a freshwater swimming pool that went into an ocean. How do you get fresh water in there? He built a six and a half mile aqueduct system to collect water, and every tenth of a mile, it dropped down a quarter of an inch to land perfectly to fill his pool. Go big or go home. God didn't build a freshwater pool in the sea. I will. He also built, you see this over on the far left side, it, it is a racetrack. You ever heard of the Olympics? You know why you've heard of the Olympics? Because in the 192nd Olympiad, Herod went to it, and the, and the people said, we're running out of money. We can't do the Olympics anymore. And Herod says, no worry, I got money. I'll fund the Olympics. So why we still have the Olympics today? Because of this guy. Oh, and by the way, he says, you guys should come and see what I built for Rome, because he built this port city exactly facing and orienting Rome. 
just for Caesar. And he says, you guys ought to come. We, I will host the Olympics in Israel. And everyone's like, no one wants to come to Israel, right? It's hot. It's dusty. And this is how he got people to come and play games. He says, I will offer medals, gifts to second and third place. Welcome to the silver and bronze medals we now have. You didn't know that, did you? All by King Herod, a guy in the story of Jesus. How awesome. Here's an artist's rendering of it. Here's his amphitheater. It's awesome. Here's his palace. There's the, where he tried doing all the sports. And he built this because God did not put a port there. So Herod says, if God didn't build it, I can. Herod puts a port here, and he develops a system to harden concrete and water. Think about that. We can do that now, but this is 2,000 years ago. He and his team developed that. Now the port's not there. It's all underwater. You can go scuba diving there and see the museum that's all underwater. But here's, I want to show you his, his palace again. This is just massive. It would be beautiful. But the swimming pool was a three-tiered swimming pool. It was awesome. That's Herod. I want to bring you to one final place. Herodium. Do you see his own name in there? Right? Because if God can't build it, I can. And Herodium was his baby. 80% of the time, King Herod was here in his own place. This is six miles south of Jerusalem, three and a half miles away from Bethlehem. And here is Herodium. The hill was not there. He had his slaves bring in dirt to build a hill. That is Herodium. And here's an artist's rendition, rendering of it as well. He put the palace up there. It faced Bethlehem and Jerusalem so he could see what the Jews are doing. Here's a huge fresh water system in a fresh water swimming pool because Herod loves swimming pools because go big or go home. And Herod went big. Here's a picture that you can go and they're standing there. And this is a gazebo. This pool was 210 feet long. It was a massive swimming pool. In fact, he had boats on there. In case you couldn't swim, but you wanted to party with him, he'd be on his gazebo and the boat can pick you up and take you to the gazebo and hang out with Herod there. Herod went big. And he constantly said, if God didn't put it there, I will. Here's a sneak thing. Um, he, they built that mountain. I need to go back to this picture really quick because this is a cool thing. He built that mountain. Do you know um, the place where Jesus says, um, faith like a mustard seed can move mountains and you can pick this mountain up and throw it? Do you know where he's at when he says that? Right by here. So it makes sense now when he's saying that. Yeah, because everyone's like, yeah, we know Herod moved this mountain. He says, all you have to do is have faith of a mustard seed. And you can tell that mountain to go throw itself in the sea. Come on, that's cool. The Bible's cool. There's so, uh, Jesus is awesome, all right? But that is King Herod, the king of the Jews. Herod had 10 wives, 15 sons. His favorite wife was Mar a girl by the name of Miriam. He would go on long trips. And at the end of his long trips, he would tell his advisors, please watch my wife because I don't want her cheating on me or doing anything else. And if Herod said to his officials, if I, come, if I don't come back, and I die on one of my journeys, kill her, because I would not be able to stand it knowing that she's with another man. 
but it's his favorite wife. In fact, she got a little worried about Herod. He started out great. He started getting really paranoid about everything. And, well, Herod thought maybe Miriam was kind of messing around, and he ended up having her killed. He got super paranoid. He would walk around his palace in Herodium there and sit, go, Miriam, Miriam. And he'd get his officials to come and say, go find her. I need my favorite wife. Knowing that when they left, they were not going to bring his wife. His wife was dead. And when they showed back up and said, Herod, we don't have her, he would beat and torture his officials. In fact, it got so, he got so paranoid, he would go out, and his two favorite sons that were going to succeed him in power, he thought they're having a conspiracy and had his two favorite sons strangled to death. Then the next son that would bring power to his name, he got worried about him and possible conspiracy theory as well and had him killed. This is the king who sits on the throne at the time of Jesus only three and a half miles away. The one that says, the king of the Jews. And in fact, Caesar Augustus says this about him. I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. And this is the guy that Matthew says that during the time of King Herod, Jesus was going to be born. So now that we know who this guy is, let us read the Christmas story, if you will, this morning, the birth narrative, the rest of it in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It begins this way. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews. Can you imagine King Herod hearing this? I'm the king of the Jews. And these magi come in and say, where's the king of the Jews? He was just born. Story continues. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But to you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. We know truth. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were what, friends? Ah, can you imagine that scene in that moment? On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and what? Because when you meet the true king of kings, that's all you can do is just bow down and worship. 
And here are the Magi, 60, 70, 80 of them because they traveled in caravans. There's not three like our little manger scenes, right? You got to add like 70 more and then we got the right. Are they worshiping? The rest of the story says this. Then they opened their treasures and, pre- and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Because they know and they knew who King Herod truly was. And now so do we. It's no wonder the guy would want to kill every baby in Bethlehem. Because he was paranoid. He thought he was the king. But on the scene, the true king came. And many kingdoms of this world fade. There's only one kingdom that lasts forever. It's the kingdom of God. And it's still ramping up. And the question that Matthew is pitting against each other is this. Who's the true king? Is it this King Herod who's selfish, who would use people at the expense of them to get what he wants? Or is it this baby that's born in a manger that will bring a kingdom of love and peace and second and third and fourth chances? Who was the true king? And Matthew is pitting the two of them together. But not only that, there's an invitation of Christmas. The invitation of Christmas, I think, could be summed up in this question. Who's your king? Because in our lives, we have many things that rule our hearts. Money. Pride. And selfishness. Our family. Our kids and grandkids, nieces and nephews. Maybe even your job and your career sits on the throne of your heart. But the invitation of Christmas is to surrender to the true kings of, king of kings, the triumphant king, the merciful king, the loving king, the king that went to the cross for you and me. That's the invitation of Christmas. In Jesus' last time eating a meal, he sat with his disciples up in the upper room, knowing that one of them's about ready to betray him. And he speaks all about love in the midst of that upper realm. And it says he took the bread and broke it. He gave thanks and he said, take and eat, for this is my body that will be broken for you. Then he took the cup and he passed the cup and drank it. And Jesus' words were, drink of this cup, for this is my blood shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until my Father's kingdom again. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion. At your own time, at your own pace. Here at Radiant Life, we say you don't have to be a member of Radiant Life. We have one request, that you've put your faith and trust into who Jesus Christ is, that you consider yourself a follower of him. Because Jesus came in that manger, died on that cross for you, for me, to give us hope. 
We're going to explain how we're going to do this in a moment. And we have a station here up front. And on that side, we have three communion stations in the back. One right in the middle, two in the back sides as well. You can come and grab the juice and the element of bread there and take it at your own time. If you want to come up and take it, that's great. If you want to go back, that's great as well. And then up front, what we've been doing now is intinction, where you have bread and you can just dip it into the juice and take it if you need to come to the altar and just get things off your chest. But I always say this, do it when you're ready, not when everyone else moves. Because for me, I'm still wrestling with this question. God, are you really king in every area of my life? every area. So I pray as we are about to take communion together that this Christmas that you wrestle with this. Who's your king? Let me pray for us and then we're going to move and take communion. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you are such a good God that you chose to come and invade earth to be present, Emmanuel, God with us here on earth through a baby that would grow up, that would take nails through his hands and feet and a crown of thorns shoved on his head and whipped and beaten and flogged all because you love us. Father, we thank you that your body was broken that blood was shed once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. I pray as we move and partake of communion and we're reminded of that sacrifice, God, may we be overjoyed knowing that we can have a relationship with you and that everything is made new when we're right with you. We love you, we praise you, and thank you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Do not be afraid. Over and over they heard those words. Four words that delivered the greatest redemptive plan. Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. For unto you a child is born. Do not be afraid. This child will change everything. He will bring restoration to the broken pieces and healing to the broken places. He will be a hope to those who are hopeless and a light to those who are lost. This child, this child will bring peace like the world has never known. So do not be afraid. Just as promised, the child was born, not in a castle or kingdom, but in a manger. Not where we would expect a king to make his grand and royal entrance, but he made it. He made his entrance in a world that lived too much in fear to dwell with us so we too would hear, do not be afraid. And through this child we learn shalom, peace is attainable, and that what was taken from us in the garden is given back to us through Jesus, the child, the promised king. So do not be afraid. Wherever you find yourself this holiday season, rejoice because Jesus is still the hope giver and peacemaker. And he shows up in the fullness of time to meet us where we are so we can rest in who he is. 
So come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, come and behold him. Born is the child, the king. Oh, come, let us adore him. He alone is worthy. This Christmas, may your light shine brightly. Because on that day, when God decided to wake up the world with the crying of a baby, salvation came. May we be grateful of that. You can blow out your candle. Don't blow wax on your neighbor, though. That would be really bad. <laughs> Will you go in peace? Have a Merry Christmas, but better yet, have a Radiant Christmas. Thanks for coming. Merry Christmas to you all, and we'll see you next week. Ushers are back there. You can drop those off. Thanks, guys, for coming. Merry Christmas.